energy. I am done talking about Mac Jones. As far as I am concerned, Mac Jones is no longer on the New England Patriots. The passion. I am very, very happy that the state of Vermont has legalized sports gambling. I just don't know if after my weekend, I can partake in it anymore. The opinions on all your favorite teams. This isn't Craig Breslow's fault. The Red Sox are not the Red Sox of old, but it's an ownership directive. Direct your anger at them. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEB AM, FM, and WDEBradio.com. What's up, everybody? Happy Monday here on the Brady Farkas Show, WDEV AM and FM and WDEBradio.com. We have a full show tonight, all 90 minutes. Super Bowl matchup is set. Chiefs 49ers, what a wild grouping of events yesterday on Conference Championship Weekend. We'll get into Dan Campbell. We'll talk about everything associated with the Super Bowl. We'll get into all that. we got a new story. I say I'm done talking about Mac Jones. we got a new Mac Jones story that came out today, which is, you know, fairly interesting. We'll get into that a little bit. want to spend some time on UVM men's basketball. Big win against Bryant. Thought they made a huge statement on Saturday winning that game in Rhode Island. Still unbeaten now in conference play. They have the upper hand as we move you know, deeper into the conference season for potential number one seed in the league tournament. The voice of the Catamounts, Brian McLaughlin, is going to join us at about 6.30 or so. So we've got a lot of things that I want to get to. 802-585-3026. That's 802-585-3026. The text line is open. Danny, I am not real thrilled with you. What happened? You happened. Your gambling happened. advice happened. No advice. Uh... Your gambling advisement happened. So let me just, if you missed yet last Monday's show, let me reset it for you briefly. We, meaning Vermonters, now have legalized sports gambling, right? That's cool. So I'm, and I'm all for it. But I don't know that I'm really cut out for it. One, I don't think I'm that good at it. Two, I get rather impatient. You can't be an impatient gambler. So like I, but I did last week partake. I put in 25 bucks in my DraftKings account, had a little fun. Lost, you know, went down to, uh, what did I say, Danny? $3.84, right? I lost $22 last weekend. And this weekend on Saturday, I did kind of a, a mid-tier bet. You know, I bet basically my entire 384 on something, ended up winning, and I was up to 7.75 or something, right? $7.75 in my account. So I messaged you and I had a free bet. I had one free bet left. Luckily, this so what Danny screwed me on wasn't real lost money. It was free lost money, but still, I'm still angry about it. I go to Danny and go, hey, I just won $4 or whatever. You know, I'm at seven seventy. Now I can keep playing over the weekend. And I go, I need a Celtics bet for later with my free bet. Danny sends me, you know, the idea. I don't know if you actually bet it or if it was just an idea of a bet, but you like a five-leg parlay. And I'm like, okay, that seems kind of interesting. I'll take some of what Danny had to do. They're getting ready to play the Clippers. Danny's Mr. Hoops. I'm like, all right, let's go. So I go and I bet Celtics money line, lost. James Harden over 18 points, lost. Jalen Brown over 22.5 points, lost. And Kawhi Leonard, just for fun, under 1.5 three-pointers, lost. But you put the idea the in my head wow. of a parlay. Hold on. You put in my head the idea of a parlay. That was a bad idea from the start. You said Celtics money line. They got killed. You had Jalen over 22.5. That didn't happen. So basically the premise of my bet was built around my conversation with you. You put it in my head, and I went 0 for 4 on the parlay. I don't know if I've ever seen 0 for 4 on a parlay before. 3 out of 4, 2 out of 4. This was 0 for 4, and I blame you. Well, I'm sorry for believing in my team. I got an awful game. By and James Harden's on you. 
I would never bet him to score 18 over. He had a triple-double the day before. Yeah. the game before. You never know with James Harden. That's what I'm saying. Well, I... He's I didn't completely unpredictable. Westbrook, I didn't realize Russell Westbrook was going to score, you know, every point along with Kawhi in the first quarter and James Harden. I don't even think James Harden scored in the first quarter when I was watching that game. Everybody else did. Yeah, everybody like else. Like their did. entire team. And then I, uh, I bet that remaining 770 or something yesterday on Ravens money line lost and Gus Edwards anytime touchdown lost. So I am down to 17 cents in the account. So basically we're going to try to do some crazy 10 leg parlay. Celtics bet tonight. With 17 cents and, uh, you know, see if we can win, you know, 500 bucks out of it or something. Text says, he who gambles ends up in shambles. Be careful wow. out there, Vermont betters. Yeah, very good uh, rhyming there. Yes, be careful. I only bet $25 to start. I can't, I'm not betting $25,000. So you bet a free sure. bet on this and you're still complaining. It was a free, yeah. And I'm really mad too because I apparently had eight free bets and I thought they expired on Sunday. They expired on Saturday. So I left two free bets on the table and didn't even get to use them. I didn't even see mine. Y- yeah, you they apparently must have expired did. some time. I think I downloaded the app a couple of years ago when I was at a Celtics game. So maybe that was it. That was probably it. Your sign in bonus could only, you're, you could only use it in Massachusetts. Well, I could never so. sign in again once I got home. Yeah. So. There you go. 802-585-3026. I got to say, next week is Super Bowl Media Week. This is probably the first year that I've truly been happy, truly been happy not going to Super Bowl Media Week. Right? I've, I went four years, 2000, 16, 17, 18, and 19. 2020 was COVID, right? So they had the Super Bowl, but I didn't go. And then, or the 2020 season, I should say. And then 2021, 2022, I had a, you know, I was like, hey, we're going to do our radio row at home. We're going to hang out here. I brought all the guests on virtually and we had a blast and I loved doing it. And I kind of realized, okay, I don't need to be there, but I always kind of miss the excitement. This is the first year I'm truly going to be happy, I am not at Super Bowl Media Week. Super Bowl Media Night, right? Media Night. Is, now they call it Super Bowl Opening Night, but it used to be just called Media Day. Is going to be the most unbearable spectacle I've ever been a part of. And I maintain this. I said this weeks ago, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. I don't have a problem with Taylor Swift. Like Taylor Swift as a person, I don't have a problem with. And I don't have a problem with her relationship with Travis Kelsey. They seem happy, and that's really great. Like, you should be rooting for other people to have happy relationships, as far as I'm concerned. It's everybody else around, the fans and the media, that are going to make Taylor Swift unbearable. And that is what's going, that is what is about to happen. Like, for a lot of you, it's already there. It's not so much about Taylor Swift or Travis Kelsey. It's the media's portrayal of them. It's going to be put times a zillion over the next couple of weeks, or the next two weeks. And I, I I, personally am happy I will not be in Vegas. It's the first year that I will be happy not having gone there. Because, Danny, I always found Super Bowl media night to be really weird. Like, I was never a huge fan of it. Because I always tried to treat it like a journalist, right? Like, I would go up and I would ask players questions, and I'm talking about football, and, hey, what was it like here, and whatever. And that's where I talked to Rex Burkhead and Matthew Slater and Trey Flowers and all these great Patriots. And Brandon Cooks, when he was on the Rams, like – I tried to do it more straight up, and I was always annoyed at the, the the losers who were there in costumes, and they, you know, 
guy dressed as SpongeBob. Hey, what's your favorite Nick Jr. character? You know, all pro defensive end. I never had any time for that. Okay. Now we're going to see there was one guy who I won't mention who was a prominent guy in this business who like his whole thing, his whole shtick was to like be a comedian. And he, he dressed up one year as a baby, wore an adult, wore a diaper and, you know, a, a rattle and carried it around was asking, you know, the rattle was his microphone and was asking questions like this guy is probably making $500,000 and he's dressed like a baby. And I was making, you know, 30 grand at the time. I, Say I had no, t- huh? Say Colin Coward's name. It was not Colin Coward. So I had no pro, like I had no time for any of this stuff. Now we're going to get people dressed as babies asking every single person what their favorite Taylor Swift song is. I am happy I'm not going to be there. Okay. I am happy I'm not going to be there. That's never been serious though, right? Like the, that opening night, it's international media asking ridiculous questions. It's, it was serious to me. And as I said, when I started in this business, I was really boring and really stiff. And maybe this was like, the years I went to the Super Bowl were still an extension of that. Like I saw it as a journalist op- obligation and not so much an entertainer. I would be better now in that setting, but I still don't have the desire to dress up like, you know, the Easter bunny and ask, Hey, what's your favorite holiday candy? Like I, I that's never going to be me. That's never going to be me. And that's all it's going to be next week. It's just going to be Taylor Swift stuff. Like, every question is going to be about Taylor Swift, and I'm going to have no interest in it, and I'm going to have no time in it. And, again, I don't hate her. I don't hate them. They seem perfectly happy. I'm bothered by the media's coverage of it and the media's insistence on covering it, and it's going to be unbearable. So I can promise you that for this show, we are not going to do a whole lot of – we're not going to do any Taylor Swift talk over the next two weeks. None. Zero. And I re- and I'm so irritated, as I told you on Friday, that now not only are we going to have the Taylor Swift takeover from the media, we have its fixed guy who can now think they were right about this. Right? That bothers me to no end. I I saw it immediately. The minute the Ravens lost yesterday, it was it was fixed to get Taylor to the Super Bowl. And I wanted so badly for Baltimore to win and the Chiefs to lose and Taylor Swift to not be at the Super Bowl so that its fixed guy didn't have a leg to stand on. But now its fixed guy has a leg to stand on. And that bothers me to absolutely no end. I am so infuriated by the idea of fans who think that the league is fixed, who think that the league is scripted, who think that the league has an agenda, who think that professional sports are rigged, blah, 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 blah. I don't even want to listen to it and entertain it, but it is everywhere. Okay, I can promise you that Lamar Jackson did not throw the game yesterday, like I see people saying on social media. There are people who who think that the league called down and is telling everyone, like, here's what I want. Here's, this is, this is actually a serious question. This is a serious question. 802-585-3026. If you are a person who thinks the league is fixed, I would like to know what you think the fix is. Do you think that the league tells the ref, hey, we want Kansas City to win, so please call the game so Kansas City wins? Or do you think the league tells the players, hey, we want Kansas City to win, so Baltimore players, here's payouts for you to choke. That's what I want to know. Because I, I, the people who say it's fixed, I, I just, I still, I can't get around this idea. Okay? The league might be happy 
that the Chiefs are there and that Taylor Swift is there. I'm sure from a profitability and rating standpoint, they're, they're, they're okay with Taylor Swift being involved in the Super Bowl and the Chiefs being there again. Nobody made Zay Flowers fumble in the end zone. Nobody made Zay Flowers with a ridiculous taunting penalty. And nobody made it so Lamar Jackson couldn't do anything offensively. I mean, it's absurd. And it's fixed guy is so happy today because they think their narrative was proven right. Let me ask you this. The league would have loved for the Lions to be in the Super Bowl, I'm sure, right? Great story, all fun and all that. Was the script, is the league not fixed now for the Niners to come back and win? Like, it's only fixed for Kansas City. It's not fixed for anybody else. I don't know. Um, see, I have an idea uh, for a new daily segment for Danny Hoops, Brady's humble brag of the day. What am I humble bragging about? I'm not even humble bragging right now, I don't think. Danny, I didn't, I didn't I, hear any brags so Am I humble bragged? All I am is I'm angry at its fixed guy. You went to the Super Bowl twice? I don't think that's really bragging. Four times. Four. Okay, now you're bragging. I don't want to be... Um, Minneapolis? Where else did you go? Uh, Houston. San Francisco, Houston, Minneapolis, and Atlanta. But I... I, I just... I'm so angry. And what I love, too, is one of these guys, one of the people who I see in person, I told you a couple weeks ago, a guy in my com- uh, guy in my uh, apartment complex, I never met him before. He was wearing a Niners jacket. Christmas Day, I, read, I wished him good luck. I'm like, hey, man, Merry Christmas. Good luck to your Niners tonight. Ha, ha, ha. And his first words were to me, we never met before. He goes, it's fixed. We already know who's going to win. It's fixed. Vegas has their hands in it. It's fixed. I'm like, buddy, I hope I see you tonight. You have your Niners jacket on. I hope I can ask you, hey, remember how you told me the league is fixed? Is it still fixed now that your team is in the Super Bowl? It just absolutely enrages me. Um, all right, 802-585-3026. Danny, I don't even want to take a break here. Let's just get, let's just get right into the games. Let's get right into the discussion point. So the Chiefs beat the Ravens 17-10. I told you that I thought Travis Kelsey was going to play play a huge role in this game. Travis Kelsey ended up playing a huge role in this game. I'm actually surprised at how little other stuff happened offensively in this game. I really thought that these two teams were going to be able to put up points on each other. And I didn't think it was going to be 47-44, but I thought we could see 27-24. I thought we could see 24-21, 24-23. To see 17-10 was surprising. Kelsey was great. Mahomes was undeniably great when he needed to be. But the thing that impressed me the most was Kansas City's defense. Steve Spagnuolo, I thought, was the MVP of the weekend because he had Lamar Jackson completely bottled up. And I know Lamar's overall passing numbers are like 275 yards. Like, they overall look fine, but he wasn't fine. The Ravens couldn't do nothing offensively. They were very, very poor. And I thought the way Steve Spagnuolo designed, and we've seen this with Bill Belichick in the past with the Patriots, what the Ravens did to contain Jackson was pretty special, especially early on in the game. I know the Ravens had some chances later, you know, third, fourth quarter, where they got a couple of things going, and right, they had the play where Flowers fumbled the ball through the end zone. So they did have some chances. But I thought the Ravens, or I thought the Chiefs, rather, were really, really smart in how they designed their pressures. And, Danny, basically what I think the Chiefs did, what their game plan was with Steve Spagnuolo, was they rushed Lamar Jackson off the edge, so they set the perimeter. They did not allow Lamar Jackson to get outside. And then basically 
they kind of stopped coming because once you rush Lamar Jackson and get past him, well, then he steps up in the pocket and he just goes. They basically rushed off the edge, sealed off the edge, and then kind of stopped coming and basically were walling off saying, okay, you're now you're not going to run, and we're going to have essentially all of these guys dropped in coverage, and it just I thought it was brilliant. He couldn't step up in the pocket and get going. He couldn't get outside and get going. They got him for the terrible interception in the end zone as well. They just I thought Steve Spagnolo was excellent. And Kelsey was big, and Mahomes was big, and they were big in big moments. And that's what we saw forever with the New England Patriots, right? Um, we don't need to play it, Danny, but we had the audio in the afternoon news service of Jason McCourty, the old Patriots DB, who said, like, this reminds me, this Mahomes situation, this Chiefs situation reminds me of what we used to have in New England, right? Like the 2018 season, Pats aren't as good. Hey, the Pats are washed. Brady's not as good. Gronk's not as good, whatever. And they just find a way, right? They do it on the road. They find a way, and they just always step up in the big moments. And that's what the Chiefs have done. And I am not a Chiefs hater. I'm not a fan of an AFC team outside of the Patriots, so I'm not even tired of the Chiefs. I think what the Chiefs have done has been pretty special. I do think they are in a transition, just like the Patriots went through a transition, and it's going to be fascinating to see what the Chiefs do in the future because I, I said it and I believe it. I believe that Travis Kelsey is going to retire, right? And, and look, if we're going to go into it, I would not be shocked if Travis Kelsey proposes to Taylor Swift at the Super Bowl if they win and then walks off. Really, I, I, I would not be shocked. If they win and confetti's dropping, he proposes to her and he retires and we don't see him anymore. But from a football perspective, the Chiefs are going to look a lot different, I think, moving forward. And what they've done to this point in kind of the first iteration of their dynasty has been very, very special. And now it'll be about how they go forward this game against a great defense in San Francisco and then what they do moving forward. But uh, that that was an interesting game. It was more boring than the later game, obviously, but it was interesting. I thought Steve Spagnuolo did a great job, and Mahomes and Kelsey were big. Tech says, I didn't see Casey's defense keeping Lamar under wraps, including that late INT into triple coverage, which was proof that he was lost out there most of the day. It's a good point. I, I thought Steve Spagnuolo did a great job at confusing Lamar Jackson. And the knock on Lamar initially was that he's not a great pocket passer. Well, he answered a lot of questions about being a pocket passer this year. He had a great year. He's going to win MVP. Like, don't forget that. And he's much more than just his legs. But he did look confused. He did look lost yesterday. And Spags is the reason for that. Tech says, I do not think the league is fixed. It is, however, more about fluffy entertainment than it is football. That's from Joe in Essex. I'm trying to figure out what Joe means. Because Joe's text is fair, right? He says it's about entertainment more than it is about football. So so what? The league tells the refs like, hey, it's twenty seven nothing, hey, let's get the or it's twenty four to seven, let's get the Niners back in the game and see what happens. I I don't think that so. I don't think that. Look, and here's the thing too. The NFL among every um, the NFL more than anything else doesn't need any kind of bump. They've already got us. 
you're going to watch the NFL every single week, right? 47-44, 6-3, you're going to watch. Okay, they don't need to go out of their way to cheat the system. Okay, baseball, hockey, those things might need to go out of their way to cheat the system. The NFL doesn't. And I, for the record, I don't think that they do either. Golf, but like, I don't think any of these teams, any of these leagues do. Um, let's get to the Lions. That game was the entertaining game. That game is just backbreaking for Detroit, for those players. I can't stand the 49ers. That, that's a jealousy thing as a Seahawks fan from a purely objective standpoint. They're excellent. And I think the Super Bowl is going to be excellent. And I think you have a Kansas City offense that is not that great, but has Mahomes against a 49ers defense that certainly can be great and has been great. I think you have a Chiefs defense that just showed it can be excellent against a Niners offense, which I also think can be excellent, but has looked more vulnerable at times here in the playoffs. So I think it's just, I think it's fascinating where all four units in this game, you know, not including special teams in the Super Bowl, I think they can be great. But they've also, in the case of the, both offenses, have shown the ability to be vulnerable. Um, devastating loss for the Lions. I'm gutted for them. And as a fan of a team that lost a Super Bowl at the one-yard line, I feel your pain. And maybe less so, given that the Seahawks have won the Super Bowl the year before and the Lions have never been. But I'm somewhat in the ballpark of feeling your pain. Dan Campbell's going to catch a lot of heat. And I thought about how I wanted to handle this talk all day. And, and I guess I just will say this. I don't think Dan Campbell deserves all the heat that he's been getting today for a couple of different reasons. One, Dan Campbell is a huge reason why the Lions are even here. And I don't even mean from X's and O's, right? We talked all year about how, oh, I wish the Patriots had a coach like Dan Campbell. I wish Belichick were more like Dan Campbell. Oh, we like the next guy to be more like Dan Campbell. He has instilled a culture, a belief system, a love for his players that they will run through a wall for him. And I am, I fully believe the Lions are not where they are as a organization if Dan Campbell doesn't instill that stuff. So Dan Campbell deserves far more praise holistically than he does criticism for what happened yesterday over the span of, you know, 35 minutes of, of play calling, etc. So there's also this notion, and I can't fight it. The Lions got here being aggressive. Dan, uh, Dan, Danny, play me the Dan Orlovsky cut about Dan Campbell. Way too many Dans in this. Dan Orlovsky, it's on the afternoon news service bar, talking about why he didn't really have a problem with the Lions going forward on fourth down. Wrapped up in, like, the analytics, and everyone wants to blame analytics when these things happen. I honestly don't believe a lot of this is an analytics thing. I believe it's an identity thing for Dan Campbell. RC, I think your point of, like, this is what he started to do when they weren't a good football team, and in part of the reason why they became became a good good football team. And also, the way the game was going. They were dominating the football game. It was fourth. They've gone for it on fourth and three or less. 25 times this year they've converted on 20 of them i mean i can't argue with that right so everyone's like well just because you do it in week one doesn't mean you do it in the nfc title game this is what got them here 
So if this is what got them here, and this is part of the reason why they earned the three seed and part of the reason why they were in contention for the one seed, then I can't really get on him for that either. And as I always say, Danny, one call does not dictate a game. In this situation, the two fourth down situations did not decide this game either. Okay? I I would have taken the field goal attempt personally when they were down 27-24, right? When they were down 27-24 with seven minutes to play or whatever, I would have gone for the field goal to try to tie the game. That is what I would have done. But they didn't, and then the Niners ultimately went and scored. But beyond that, okay, I mean, Josh Reynolds dropped the first fourth. Right, 24-10, to the Josh Reynolds dropped the pass. Josh Reynolds dropped a third and ten pass. That would have been a first down. Um, Amon Ross St. Brown was open on one of the other fourth down calls, and uh, that was on that seven-and-a-half-minute one, and Jared Goff didn't deliver a good ball. Jameer Gibbs fumbled. The Brandon Ayuk 51-yard catch should have been intercepted. Like, the Lions did a lot of things to beat themselves aside from the Dan Campbell calls. The Lions, the defense got walked all over in the second half. So we can sit here and talk about, well, they should have kicked it here, they shouldn't have kicked it there. They had their chances still. They had a chance to salt that game away and couldn't do it. They had a chance to create game-changing interceptions and couldn't do it. So I would have taken the field goal to try to tie it at 27. I can't blame it all on Dan Campbell like a lot of people want today. Now, he's a good leader. He'll probably take it all on himself, but it's not all on him. Not all on him. And, Danny, you know, we see this in basketball all the time, right? Like, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? How many times do we see it where the Celtics are up 12 with two and a half minutes to play, and half the time, you know, they pull it out and we're like, well, they stopped being aggressive. They stopped being aggressive. Now they look sloppy. Now the other team's gotten back into the game. But then if they had been too aggressive and they missed shots, we're going to say, well, they moved too quick. Like, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. So the Lions at 24-10 don't kick the field goal. If they had gotten the first down, if Reynolds doesn't drop the pass, we're sitting here saying, man, they were aggressive. They know how to stomp on the throat. They want to put, they want to end this game. They're going for the win. They're not being complacent. And we'd all be pumped for them. But instead they don't get it. Now everybody's saying, oh, they should have been conservative. You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. And we're also assuming that Michael Badgley, who's not a great kicker from 40 to 49 yards, is going to make all these kicks. Right? The first kick would have been from 45, I think. The second kick would have been from 48. And the Lions routinely pass up field goals from those lengths because they don't trust Badgley. Nine of 20 I saw in his career from 48 plus. It's worse among people with that many attempts. So there's a, I mean, there's a lot of assuming that these kicks were, were, were sure things. It's not an automatic from 47, 48, whatever it was going to be. The first one, I think, was from 45. The second one was from 48. I'm pretty sure St. Brown got tackled on the third down at, like, the 31. And then they went for it on the fourth down and, and threw it to St. Brown again, and it was incomplete, you know, the one where it fell short. Their kicker missed extra points, I think, in the, at the end of the season. Tex says, Lions didn't play a complete 60-minute game. That's the sad, unfortunate truth. It is sad. And I'm not trying to be an apologist for Dan Campbell. Again, I, w- I would have tried the field goal at 27-24, and you're down. Try to tie the game. But, again, 
This is what got them there. And if this is what got you here, there's the old saying, like, dance with who you brung. Well, that's what the Lions did. And I have to give credit to a guy who is himself. And we talk about teams having an identity, and we talk about teams being like this or being like that. The Lions know who they are, and Dan Campbell's secure enough in his own skin to know who he is. Now, I saw other people say, no, well, you know, that's all great, but you got to know the game situation and momentum, et cetera. I, I look at it and say the Lions had plenty of other chances. Fumble, Jameer Gibbs can't fumble the football. Josh Reynolds can't drop two passes. He certainly can't drop the third and ten, which was a clear first down, and cause them to have to punt. It just, it was a disastrous second half. And I, I feel bad for the Lions. I feel bad for Lions fans because that was, that was ugly. And, uh, look, we are going to get a good Super Bowl. I think this is a good matchup between two teams and two organizations that have met in the Super Bowl before, two organizations that have a good history, that have a history together. We talk about, you know, Joe Montana and, uh, you know, him playing for both franchises. So there, there's some juicy storylines here, but I feel bad for the Lions and the fact of how that went down because that one was very, very tough. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. When we come back, we'll take you through some Patriots news, including a new story out on Mac Jones and what went wrong for him in 2023. Also some updates on the offensive coordinator search. Nick Cayley might be the very big front runner for that job. We'll talk about all of that after CBS News on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Parker Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Texture says, why the Lions stopped running the ball in the second half? I'd have to go and officially look at the breakdown, but I do remember them running the ball. Like, they were putting themselves in positions, especially David Montgomery. Um, they were getting in advantageous situations. But I do think they had no problem throwing the ball in the first half, and they really thought they could get chunk plays. And then all of a sudden what happens is is you run the ball with Gibbs, and he fumbles. Well, now you're on your heels, and you, now you got to pass. So all of this snowballed very, very quickly for Detroit. And I'd be interested in asking, right, Ben Johnson might get a head coaching job, right, the offensive coordinator for the Lions. I don't know that he'll have to answer for what happened from his offense's perspective in this, but if he gets the Washington job or he gets the Seattle job, I would be curious to hear him kind of talk about what led to what eventually happened last night in that Lions loss. I also, by the way, put something on the Lions defense, right? Like the Lions, even, even with fourth down stuff, even with other mismanagement, Lions defense came and surrendered 27 points in the second half. I mean, that is, that's alarming, right? Like, that's alarming. And they had plenty of chances to make plays, and they weren't able to do it. And they weren't able to stop long drives. And McCaffrey got going, and Steve-O got going. And Pur- I mean, Brock Purdy, of, of all people, had multiple scrambles here for big plays. So, I, you know, the defense, the drops, bad pass by Goff, the fumble, all of it contributed. Um, all right, 802-585-3026. Danny, let me get to a story that was in Mass Live today. It was written by Mark Daniels and others about the fall of Mac Jones. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but here is how I feel. We're, I'm sure we will see other Mac Jones stories, right? Mac Jones is on this team until the start of the league new year. I think he'll be traded or cut, but he's on the roster until the start of the league new year. So, with Belichick gone and people now speaking a little more freely about what happened in 2023, and with Maxwell on the roster, 
we will see more of where did things go wrong for Mac. This is kind of how I'm going to feel about all of them. What we saw from Mac was largely predictable, and nothing that I read really is likely to surprise me. I, I've seen multiple stories about Mac that I think are billed as bombshell reports. They're not bombshells. They're entirely predictable. I mean, here's here's what this this is a long story, and here's the germination of it all. Right? It all boils down to this. As a rookie, back played well. He had support in the locker room. Right? Teammates supported him. They were winning. He had Josh McDaniels, who he had a good relationship with, and obviously Belichick was happy with what was transpiring on the field with a young quarterback. 2022 comes. Josh McDaniels is gone. And with that started what we thought were predictable problems. Matt Patricia, is there a guy that Mac didn't really like or trust? The weaponry was not great around Mac, so the offensive game plan is not great. The coaching situation is not great. Mac is unhappy. There's a tense relationship. The talent isn't necessarily that great around him, and therefore he's predictably playing worse. And then 2023 happens, and you have the damage of 2022 looming. The talent level has further regressed. Belichick is no longer his biggest supporter, and Mac feels pressure. And then what happens in 2023 happens, right? It gets all again predictable. Mac gets frustrated by how the team is playing. He he knows he doesn't have great talent around him. He tries to do too much. He tries to overcompensate. Now he plays outside of his skill level and ability. The results get even worse. Bill likes him less. He's now fearing for his job. And then by the end of the year, you have a guy who is completely, you know, his confidence is completely whittled away. These bombshell reports to me are almost completely predictable. We saw this stuff happen in real time, and we saw a lot of it, I think, coming from a mile away. There are things that are interesting in this story about what Mac did wrong. Mac acknowledging the things he did wrong. He said to sources that he tried to overcompensate. He tried to play outside his skill set. He tried to cover up for his teammates in terms of, you know, hey, I know these guys aren't as good. Let me try to do more. It paints me as a guy who really cares. Well, we already knew Mac really cared, right? We thought Mac cared about his job, about his craft. So when the team is losing, he's like, well, look, let me step up and try to do more. That doesn't surprise me either. What surprised me the most in this story was at the very end, Bill Belichick didn't even talk to Mac. Didn't talk to him for the last couple of weeks when they demoted him to third string in that final game before the Jet, you know, before the uh, final regular season game against the Jets. Belichick didn't even tell Mac that was the case. He literally found out 90 minutes before the game that he was going to be inactive. That to me is unacceptable. Mac apparently went to Jets people after, you know, during the game or, you know, after the game when they're shaking hands or before the game or whatever when they're warming up and said basically like, hey, I appreciate what you have done for Zach Wilson. At least you're honest with him about where he's at, right? The Jets have said they were sticking with him. Then they said they were going to bench him. They said they were going to trade him in the offseason. He's like, hey, at least Zach knows what's up, whereas I have no idea. That, that to me was one of the revelations out of this, that Belichick didn't speak to him and that Belichick didn't even tell him about this stuff going into the final week of the season. I thought that was completely inappropriate. For a guy who is a head coach 
and has been a head coach for 30 years in the NFL, to not to leave your quarterback hanging like that, a guy who has started, you know, 40 games for you, 40-plus games for you, that's completely inappropriate. But but none of this stuff surprises me. The, the, if, you, if I had to point with where I thought Mac went wrong, it was the verbal or it was the antics in 2022. I don't think Mac played the good soldier well. And maybe it's not easy to play the good soldier, but if you want to continue to have favor in the locker room, I think playing the good soldier is important. And Mac didn't do that in 2022, right? We saw the Buffalo game. He looks like, you know, Buffalo game on Thursday night in Foxborough. It looks like he's kind of cursing out Patricia under his breath. He's waving him off in the Monday night game against Arizona. I mean, these are nationally televised games where Mac is showing up, Matt Patricia. And he's very, very frustrated, clearly. And we're at, like, you know, week 12 and 13 of the season by this point. So I get that it's coming to a head. But that, I think, is where Mac probably really went wrong is that he starts to you know show up Patricia Belichick gets further mad at him and then guys start to see him act out he gets kind of this whiny rep and it kind of continues to follow him that's where I would say he he went wrong but all of this was particular so or all of this was predictable when we sit here and say oh this is a bombshell report not really a bombshell report. The, the coaching situation of 2022 was going to reverberate, and it did. And it, it ultimately is done in Mac Jones. And I don't think Mac Jones can be here anymore. And do I think that Mac Jones is savable? Yeah. Right? I've seen guys get second acts. Baker Mayfield's on his third team. Geno Smith went eight years with, between starting quarterback jobs and made the Pro Bowl last year. Guys can have second and third acts and play well. Guys can revitalize themselves. Max just not going to do it here. He's going to have to do it somewhere else. And does, where does he go? I have no idea. Does Minnesota want him, given that Kirk Cousins is coming off an injury and now he's in his mid-30s? Does Minnesota want him? Kevin O'Connell looks like a guy. Look, Kevin O'Connell played with uh, – Josh Dobbs in one games. He played with Nick Mullins. He's supposed to be a quarterback guru. Maybe he wants a crack at Mac Jones. There are other teams, I'm sure, that with good offensive systems and good talent, like does Sean Payton want a crack at Mac Jones if they move on from Russell Wilson, as we're told that they're going to? Now, does Atlanta want Mac Jones? Because they don't love Ritter and Heineke. Do they? I, and Belichick's not going there. I don't know. But th- there's a spot for Mac, and he's going to get a chance to have a second act. And he needs to handle his attitude better. He needs to handle his emotions better. Um, I hope that he can for him. I don't want to see anybody fail, right? I don't want to see anybody fail. But th- this story is not really a uh, – is not a um, – is not a bombshell. Text says, good luck to Mac. He deserves a second chance with a team with an offensive head coach. The amount of known negativity from Belichick, who most likely knew he was out unless the pass made the playoffs, is what must be keeping other teams from jumping at a chance to hire him. I think Mac will be in L.A. backing up Stafford. I think Mac's going to end up in San Francisco backing up Brock Purdy. That's what I think. 
right? The 49ers liked Mac coming out. There were thoughts of maybe them taking Mac instead of Trey Lance, like they were going to take Mac at three instead of Lance. You don't just forget that. I think Sam Darnold is going to be gone from San Francisco. Maybe he'll get a chance at one of those places that I just mentioned. And then that's going to open up the, the backup spot in San Fran for Mac. He's going to get to go 3,000 miles away from here. He's going to get to go 3,000 miles away from home. He's going to be all football all the time. He's going to get a chance to learn from Shanahan. He plays similar to Brock Purdy, proximity to greatness in Shanahan. I think all of that is excellent, and I think that will spur him getting a chance again in 2025. If it's not there, there are options, right? Like, again, I just named a couple of them. Danny, let me pull up kind of the full list of quarterback situations. I'm sure there might be five places where Mac could potentially start next year, right? He could start in Vegas, potentially. Aiden, Jimmy Garoppolo gone. They got Aiden O'Connell. Vegas is going to need a quarterback next year. Denver's going to need a quarterback next year. Um, Pittsburgh's going to need a quarterback next year. I don't think they would go with Mac, given that they just had Trubisky, who's on the same kind of career arc as Mac, and they're over him. I don't think they would do that, but they're going to need a quarterback as well. Tennessee, we think it's Will Levis, but they could be in the market for a quarterback. So that's it. Three and a half teams in the AFC alone. Washington's going to need a quarterback. Um, Vikings are going to need a quarterback. That's five. And then, you know, New Orleans could need a quarterback. Atlanta needs a quarterback. Carolina needs a quarterback. Carolina doesn't need a quarterback. So there's six to seven teams where Mac could have potential starting capability in 2024. I think he's more likely suited for a backup reset his head, do what, do what Trubisky did, do what Geno did, do what some of these guys have done where you try to refine yourself and resurface again. But there are options out there for Mac potentially as a starter. And then Tampa, I think they're going to bring back Baker, but, you know, in theory they need a quarterback as well. Uh, on the Patriots news, oh, Tex says San Francisco is a great call. Uh, so many spots for Mac. Hope the Pats can maximize his potential value um, well, I think Mac is going to get a – I don't think Mac is worth anything more than a sixth-round a sixth round pick at this point. In fact, I think it's likely, like, the Pats give up Mac and a seventh to get a sixth. I, I, I think Mac has almost no value here. I would like to trade him and get something, but I wouldn't be shocked if he's just cut out right. And if he is, then he'll have his pick of the litter. Maybe he would rather be cut out right and get a chance to get signed rather than get traded a place he doesn't have a say in. But I uh I do I just I don't think Mac is here. Maybe Zappy can stick here, but I, I think the Pats need probably a veteran quarterback. So I wouldn't be shocked if they move on from Zappy also in the offseason. Because Danny Zappy wants to play. Like he's made that clear. He wants to play, and he believes he's beaten Mac out for the job. So he thinks the job is his. So if the Patriots draft a quarterback at number three, I don't expect Zappy to be this, like, happy backup who's here to mentor. He wants in. So the same dynamic we had with Mac and Zappy, we could have with Zappy and the new guy. So does that mean that Zappy gets dealt also to alleviate that? Or does that mean they bring in the Brian Hoyer type who can, you know, who, who can kind of alleviate the tension in the room, but they're going to need that guy. 
It's just a question of if they want Zappy to be a part of it also. Are they going to want two quarterbacks or three quarterbacks? Because you are not going to want the, the tension issues that we had a season ago. And because they were very, very real. Joe says, I say we keep Zappy, but put him on the practice squad. I'd like to have a veteran, uh, backing up or be a stopgap guy. I, yeah, I, I mean, Zappy is not going, well, he's not going to happily go to the practice squad again. He wants to play. He believes that he deserves to play. And given the Mac and Zappy dynamic, I would argue at this point that Zappy probably does deserve to play because I don't think Mac is going to be here. But when they draft the quarterback number three, they they're gonna they're gonna need an older veteran. Now, I don't know who that is, but they're gonna need an older veteran there who can be an adult in the room and who can keep things um, from escalating or being uncomfortable. Eight oh two five eight five. 3026, uh, one more text. Who do I think the Pats will draft? Well, right, right now, I think it's going to be Jaden Daniels or Drake May. I think Caleb Williams goes number one. No matter who has the pick, I think Caleb Williams goes number one, right? If Chicago wants to keep Justin Fields and trades the pick, I think that, that, uh, Caleb Williams goes one. If Chicago trades Fields, which will be a fascinating storyline this offseason, and they'll take Williams, then I think it comes down to May or Daniels or whichever one's left, I think the Pats will take. I really do want to know what's going to happen with Justin Fields because I think that guy has immense talent. Now, he's not refined. I heard Colin Coward say he's kind of a YouTube quarterback, meaning he's all highlights and not necessarily a lot of substance. There's some truth to that. But I think the talent and still the affordability for at least two years is wildly appealing. So... All those teams I said just need a quarterback and could want Mac. All of them would want Fields, and all of them would want Fields more than Mac. Fields in Vegas, maybe. Fields in Pittsburgh, maybe. Fields in uh, Washington, possibly. A little less likely, I think, to trade them in the conference. Certainly not in the division for anything. Although not none of those teams really need it. Well, the Vikings need a quarterback. I don't think they would trade them there. But you know, the the market for Fields. Will be fascinating as well. Danny, let's stick with the Patriots. Let's get a little update on the offensive coordinator search. Nick Cayley, we spoke a lot about last week. Former Patriots tight end coach. Just spent the year as the Rams tight end coach. Worked with Sean McVay. By all accounts, the Patriots want to bring in a McVay-type system under Gerard Mayo. Cayley fits that. He very well might be the leader in the clubhouse, at least according to Phil Perry. And I understand that. I just feel as though some of these young offensive coordinators that you're seeing come into the league and, and have some real success, their resumes aren't going to bowl you over. They have spent more time. Bobby Sloak, for instance, I think is a pretty good one. He was basically a quality control coach about four years ago, but he spent four years under Kyle Shanahan, so maybe he's able to better implement that system down in Houston as soon as he gets there. Ted, I don't know if Nick Cayley's semester abroad in L.A. is going to make him a changed person, right, and allow him to bring this offense here. But I do think it's good for him, and I think to have the references that he'll have. With Sean McVay, it seems like it went pretty well there this year with him and Sean McVay and that relationship. Dante Scarnecchia, Josh McDaniels, like, he has worked with some pretty bright offensive minds, and coaching tight ends, he has touched the entire offense. I do have a question about this. So... I don't know Nick Cayley from Adam, right? Full full disclosure on that. I don't spend a whole lot of time researching tight ends coaches. But I am all for 
the Patriots having a McVay offense. I have been in love with McVay's offense for a while. It's also like the Shanahan offense, which I'm in love with as well. The McVay offense is predicated on speed, is predicated on creativity, is predicated on giving your quarterback options. It's a zone run scheme. The Rams have done enough under McVay, right? Rams have been to the NFC title game multiple times with McVay. They've been to the Super Bowl. They've gotten, they've won the Super Bowl. They've gotten there with Goff. They've gotten there with Stafford. They've gotten there with veteran guys, with younger guys, with guys who are a little less mobile, with a guy like Goff who people don't think is particularly good or at least didn't at that time. He's gotten there with aging running backs. He's gotten there with superstars. He's, whoever he's put in has seemed to do well. And look, you look this year. He, he won a game last year with Baker Mayfield on one day's preparation. He's made Puka Nakua a, a valued star. So I love what McVay has done. I love what Shanahan has done. I'm all for getting a disciple of McVay into this job. The question that Phil raises is a valid one. Is one year, is one year there enough to be an expert? And that's the thing that would make me weary. Right or make me leery, leery, weary, leery, iophalia. Not sure. But it's the one thing that would make me nervous. That's for sure. Right. He was only there for a year. Is he really a guy who could come in and implement all the McVeigh systems? And I heard Ted Johnson of NBC Sports Boston say this also. He's like, in that one year, does he have the relationships developed to bring guys with him? Right. Like you hear oftentimes. Okay, I'm going to go to go be a coordinator, and I'm bringing the quarterback's coach, the wide receiver's coach, and somebody else, and I'm bringing my team here. Does Kaylee have a team because he was only in Los Angeles for one year? I don't know that. Haven't heard about Zach Robinson in a little bit here and kind of where he's at in this process, but Zach Robinson is the guy that everybody has apparently wanted, right? Oh, no, I take that back. Zach Robinson did get the offensive coordinator. That has just come down. Um, that came down late yesterday. So I don't mean to, to give you mis, uh, misinformation there. But Zach Robinson is off. He's getting the Atlanta job under Raheem Morris, right? Raheem Morris takes him with him from L.A. as he goes over there. So Nick Cayley's left. And I don't know that he has the team with him to, uh, you know, to bring to Foxborough. That would be the one thing that makes me nervous. But I'm all for a McVay-style offense because I've seen it work, and I've seen it work several different seasons with several different personnel groupings. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Let's deviate from football uh, when we come back. The UVM men's basketball team beats Bryant over the weekend after beating UMass Lowell on Thursday. We'll talk about the game. The voice of the Catamounts, Brian McLaughlin, is going to stop by as well and talk about what he sees from this team that is now 16-5. and five. Talking Catamount hoops, that's next on DEV. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. We'll talk about UVM. We'll get to Brian McLaughlin here in just a couple of minutes. But uh, Mark in Johnson has a text on the text line, which I think is going to be a very popular question. And I'm sure we are going to go through this several times between now and the draft. But Mark says, what if the Patriots got a veteran quarterback and then drafted wide receiver Marvin Harrison Jr. from Ohio State? I am in the camp firmly that the Patriots need to draft a quarterback, right? And that I believe that is going to be my position all the way through. What Mark says is not a bad idea, but I believe the better idea 
is drafting the quarterback. As long as you think the quarterbacks are good, as long as you believe in them, then you have to take them, right? And there's a couple of different reasons here. It's harder to find a quarterback than it is to find wide receivers, even good wide receivers, even great wide receivers. They grow on trees more often than great quarterbacks do, okay? I don't want to be picking in this spot again. So my this is hopefully the only time I'll ever be up this high again. I better be making use of it because if the Patriots – look, like, like let's just say this. Let's say the Patriots sign Kirk Cousins. And we know Kirk Cousins is good. They're not going four and five, four and thirteen with Kirk Cousins. Well, let's say they go eight and nine next year. So they draft Kirk, and they've got him for two years, and they go eight and nine, and they go ten and seven, and they get beaten in the playoffs, and then they're drafting at twenty three. Well, you're not getting a super quarterback at twenty three because you're going to need one again down the road, right? Kirk Cousins is not a long term answer. Russell Wilson at thirty five is not a long term answer. They are suitable stop gaps. But eventually, push is going to come to shove, and you're going to need the quarterback long term. And if you keep getting me these guys that win me eight games, nine games, ten games, but don't win us the Super Bowl, you're never going to be in a position to draft somebody like this or this high again without expending significant draft capital to trade up for it. Look at the quarterbacks on the free agent market right now. Like, again, some guys might get cut, but like Russ is going to get cut. But right now, Kirk Cousins. Ryan Tannehill, Jacoby Brissett, Tyrod Taylor, Sam Darnold, Jameis Winston, Baker Mayfield, Teddy Bridgewater, Joe Flacco, Russell Wilson. I, I'm not crazy about any of those guys, and none of those guys are long-term answers. Cousins is 35. Tannehill is 35. Taylor's going to be 35. Darnold's still young. Jameis is still 30. But I, I'm not interested in any of those, really, because I'm always going to need to develop the long-term answer down the road. I'm just trying to head off the process and do it now, right? We talk about the Red Sox playing half in and half out and not rebuilding and not selling and not tearing down. And as a result, we're kind of in this, like, cycle of mediocrity to bad. Well, that's kind of where we're at now with the Patriots. I'm like, look, just rip off the Band-Aid, pick the quarterback, and then you can start to figure out the receivers. Receivers are easier to get in the second round where the Patriots are picking very, very high. They're easier to get in the third round where the Patriots are picking very, very high. And on the free agent market where the Patriots have $65 million in cap space coming, Mike Evans is a free agent. OBJ, Curtis Samuel, Tyler Boyd, Kendrick Bourne, who we like they could bring back. Uh, let's see. Calvin Ridley, T. Higgins, Michael Pittman. Uh, let's see, there are other, Gabe Davis, like there are others out there. I just listed seven receivers, all of which would be better than everybody you had this year. It's easier to get receivers than it is to get the quarterback. Get the quarterback, get it right, and do it now. Uh, a team that is getting it right is the UVM men's basketball team. A big win. Over the weekend, they beat Bryant 67-57. Here's where we're at right now. UVM is 16-5 and overall. They've won seven straight. They have won all six conference games they've played. They are now 6-0. and They've beaten UMass, Lowell, and Bryant, two previously unbeaten teams. They've beaten them on the road. In theory, it should be an easier matchup for them the second time around because they get them at home. 
UVM now has the inside track at the number one seed in the conference tournament. They have the inside track at hosting the America East Conference Tournament. That is a huge development because I think that the league is better than it's been at the past at the top. So having the one seed is a very, very big deal in addition to being fun for us, the fans, to go about and enjoy seeing, you know, uh, Catamount playoff basketball at Patrick Gym. I tweet, I always try to tweet some takeaways after a UVM game, right? Whether, you know, I watch it live or I go back in the morning and put down my thoughts on paper. But I always try to tweet my takeaways. My only takeaway from Saturday was statement. That was a statement game. UMass Lowell thinks they're ready for the crown. Bryant thinks they're ready for the crown. Bryant, I believe, the best offense in the league coming into that showdown. And UVM held them to to 57 points. Sharif Gross-Bullock, who was scoreless for the first half, averages 19 a game. Like, he very well might be player of the year in the league. And UVM made life incredibly difficult for him. And the Catamounts just found a way, even though they didn't shoot it well, to grind it out and get a gritty 10-point victory on the road and two days after going to overtime, getting a gritty victory against another challenger there. That was a statement game. It was a statement performance. A guy who calls all the UVM performances this is our friend Brian McLaughlin over at Learfield in the Vermont Sports Network. He is the voice of the Catamounts. He is with us on the phone line now. Brian, team is rolling right now. Appreciate you being with us. How are you? Brady, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I appreciate you being with us as uh, as always. Hard to believe this is actually our first time speaking this season. Our last time we spoke was uh, right after the uh, Marquette loss in the NCAA tournament a year ago. I got to tell you, this team is imperfect to me. It goes through some interesting bouts and guys go through interesting droughts. But man, what a statement Saturday was. It was a really just fun weekend. You're right. This team still have plenty of things to work out. But um, really, I think you could even toss in the Binghamton trip, three straight road games for this Catamount team. And you kind of entered that trip. At least I was thinking, all right, Binghamton, I think, are, are better than their record at one and five in conference right now. And then you've got the top two teams right with UVM and UMass Lowell and Bryant. I know I entered that trip kind of thinking, all right, would love to win all three. But you win two out of three, not the end of the world. You're still in a great spot in the standings. Instead, they dominate Binghamton. They almost give it away against Lowell, but still they find a way to win, which is kind of becoming this team's whole signature style is that even when they don't play their best, they're finding ways to do it. And then one of their best performances on the defensive end of the season against the Bryant Bulldog offense that just plays so quickly. What they did to Bryant's offense was the big statement of the weekend to me. That defensive work of Shamir Bogues, Leary Iofalia, TJ Hurley, Mick Fiorillo, kind of that group defensively. That was the statement of the weekend, no doubt about it. You know, I have said this before, but the league does feel to be deeper this year. So we look at 6 and 0 and it doesn't feel oh they're just feasting on bad teams. Oh the league's not very good. It's Vermont and everybody else. UMass Lowell is good. Bryan is good. A main program that is a lot better, a Binghamton program mm-hmm. that is a lot better. This feels like the deepest the league has been in my 8 years of, you know, being in Vermont. And then you know you had the 3 or 4 I was at Albany before that. The, the decade I've covered the league. This feels like the deepest it's been, Brian. It's a really unique league, isn't it? And I tell you what, Brady, one of my favorite just kind of weird quirks of the league right now, um, 
the league is under 500. Home teams in the league are under 500 right wow. now. And they are actually the worst winning percentage of any conference in the country for the home team. And so road teams are, are winning at an unbelievable rate. The funny thing is, Brady, a year ago, the America East home teams had the best winning percentage in the country. So it's totally flipped on its head. I'm not really sure why that is at this point, um, but there have only been 10 home wins in America East play so far. You're right. It does just feel like it's a bit of a deeper league. Some of the teams like UNH, UAlbany, they have an identity, and they're not at the point yet where they're going to challenge for the conference title. But you look at UAlbany, you know they're going to get up and down, and they're going to try to score. UNH have a star in Clarence Daniels, and they can really shoot the three ball. Then you get into the likes of Binghamton, Maine can be pesky on their home floors, and then you get to the top teams of Vermont, Lowell, and Bryant. To me, it makes for a really fun week-to-week, and every time I turn on games that aren't UVM, feels like I'm not really sure what to expect, which for me is pretty entertaining. Because the team is imperfect and every game feels a little bit different than the one before, this will be an interesting answer to this question. What has impressed you about this team? It is their um, ability to stay together through adversity. And they, Brady, they're six and three when they trail at halftime. This team, when they're down, they have proven time and time again that they're willing to kind of grind it out. And they understand that they aren't perfect. They don't want to, they don't feel like they have to come out and play perfect basketball for 40 minutes to win. I don't think they played great against either Lowell or Bryant over the weekend. They, they shot it truly terribly against the Bulldogs and still were able to find a way to win. Early in the year, they relied on the shot-making of T.J. Long and the shot-making of Matt Verretto. Those two are slumping at the moment from deep, but T.J. Hurley stepped up making shots from the outside. Underratedly, Aaron Deloney's been in double figures in four straight. And so it's the fact that they are so deep and the fact that they've had contributions when Shamir Bogues was out, and they just keep coming from behind. I mean, the Yale win is the one that everybody thinks about as far as never saying that they're dead, but they came back down big against Northeastern. They came back down as much as seven against UMass Lowell. I think of Colgate, they were down, or excuse me, Charleston, down nine at halftime early this year. It's really been a fun team in the sense that there isn't a star They aren't a perfect team for 40 minutes really ever, but they keep finding ways to get it done, whether it is their bench, whether it is their defense, whether it is the shot making of the TJs. It's um, like you said, it's not the best team under John Becker, but man, this group are tough. Brian McLaughlin with us here, the voice of the UVM men's basketball team, team six and oh inside league play. He's here with us on the Brady Farkas show on WDEV AM and FM WDEV radio.com. I'm so impressed by, the mindset and that resilience of some individual players, because I don't know that I've ever really seen a situation where one day Deloney, who's the leader of this team, can play 17 minutes and score two points, and then the next day can be called on to play 32 minutes and score 18. We've seen Brenton Mills go from not playing to being a huge part of the rotation. Jace Rockamore, who didn't get off the bench for the entire what seemingly first semester and then was starting games and now was throwing down dunks in the lane the other day against Bryant. Like these guys who – it's it's, the the lineup is so deep that it's not consistent and guys are getting called on at different times and they're all finding a way to step up and contribute when they are called on. It is really one of the unique characteristics. And and I got to give so much credit to Aaron Deloney, man. If if you could allow me to go on my soapbox for a minute, just about that kid. um, I, I think the leadership that he has done behind the scenes, I think cannot go 
understated enough. I can't say it loudly enough how great he's been off the court during practice, whether he's in the starting lineup or not. That kid is the epitome of consistency. Um, and I think he's really grown into his ability to lead during games. He's gotten more vocal this year. He's been honest that that's not really something he felt he had needed to do in years past. And I recently asked him, I'm like, AD, were you kind of annoyed that everybody was like, we miss Robin Duncan's leadership at the beginning of the year, which I think was a fair thing to say. And he was just kind of like, I wasn't annoyed by it, but I never really understood it. Because he felt like he and Nick Fiorillo were in a great spot as leaders and, and were able to hold their teammates accountable. And he has just done such a great job of whether it is Bretton Mills or Jace Rockmore or Sam Alamutu or O'Leary Iofalia, just keeping those guys' heads in the game. And AD's led by example. Some nights he only plays 15 minutes. Some nights it's 25. Um, and he is just, even though it hasn't been exactly the maybe the player of the year campaign that a lot of people – expected of him he's leading this conference right now in assist to turnover ratio he is in control of the game when he's on the floor he's in control of this team when they are off the floor Aaron Deloney has been awesome he is to me the heart and soul of this team that I think they've needed him to be what's the thing that makes you the most nervous about this team the shots aren't falling at the moment I do think long term the shots will drop but I think as far as just um the the current worry, it is some of that shooting. I think you look it up and down the roster, the shots are going to fall for some of these guys every night. It's just a matter of enough against UMass Lowell. Um, you do worry at, at times still about post-defense. Um, Jonathan Beagle and Albany come into town this Thursday. Beagle is the best post-scorer in the league. Can Nick Fiorillo and Matt Verretto hold up in the post against that guy? That's how Colgate were able to beat this team. Throw it into the post to the seven-footer and let, at the time, Keegan Records go to work. So I think that's just kind of another, at least defensively, you feel like they're great guarding on the perimeter. You worry a little bit about the interior defense still, but I, I do think it, it. you just worry about a big scoring slump. It is kind of the in the back of your mind. They slumped for a big stretch against Lowell. They were able to get out of it, but a scoring slump at the wrong time where the shots stopped dropping is still kind of my my, I guess, my only, at the moment, the kind of worry. I guess along that line, I asked this of Becker after the UMass Lowell game in the, the virtual press conference um, that he had with local members of the media, and I asked him kind of basically, do you feel like your team is too reliant on the three at times, right? They, they took 33s in that game, and he said, we want more balance. Now, they don't do it with a traditional back-to-the-basket player. They get to the lane, they slash, they miss, they crash the boards, they get in the lane that way. My biggest worry would be, to your point, lack of three-point consistency but they really don't get to the line very much either. And in my mind, I'm like, if you're not going to hit the three, can you fall back on going inside and getting to the line? They only took nine free throws against Lowell. All nine were by Iofalia. Some of them were in one-and-one one garbage time down the stretch. That does worry me, the inability to get to the line. Part of that is you're playing a road game in a massive conference yes. atmosphere. You're not going to get many free throws when you're on the road. But if you go into a slump like that at home, you do need to be able to draw some contact and force the officials to, to make that call, right? That is something that I think you could, again, if you're critical of the offense, that's an area where I think you're critical. Um, as far as the offense in general goes, they early in the season were struggling because teams were switching everything. And that took away the Matt Verretto pick-and-pop threes. That took away some of Nick Fiorillo's popping game, which is where the two of them have been most comfortable. To those two's credit, 
they have gotten the ball on the block when they do get switched on to guards recently, and they've gone to work. Mm-hmm. Nick Fiorillo's performance against Bryant was a big boy step up offensive game from Nick. He got Sharif Gross Bullock or Miles Latimer on his back, and he said, I'm going to score on you. And that's what he did, which is such a great development from Nick's standpoint. So I think that they have gotten to the point where if teams are going to switch, let's throw it to Matt or Nick in the post when a guard is on them. Um, if teams don't switch, that's when those two can pop for open threes. And I think they are still able to generate looks for the TJs, for Aaron Deloney hasn't gotten as many looks as maybe he would want from deep, but that's because he's the one who is doing a lot of the passing and ball creation this year, a little bit different than his previous role. But I think they're still generating the open looks. It's just right now their shooters outside of TJ Hurley have really been kind of ice cold for about a week or two. Um but I do think they are still generating the looks that they want to at this point. And their offense changes when Shamir Bogues is out there. He adds a whole other dynamic that they didn't have for about three weeks with his ability to just blow by defenders and get to the rim. They're still working with Shamir on his decision-making. He has not been in this role before where he is the guy who is at times the dude on offense. And so he still has to iron out exactly his decision-making ability um, but that's something that I think will grow with Shamir over time. And this is a guy still with another year of eligibility. So they're really excited about where his career could go. But yeah, there's still hiccups. They're working out on offense, but I think they're at a point with their defense that they're able to now really iron out their offense, which I think is kind of flipped from the storyline at the beginning of the year where they were making every three they looked at. Brian McLaughlin, voice of the Catamounts on the Vermont Sports Network and at Learfield. Catamounts finally back at home coming up on Thursday, taking on New Albany. Uh, this three-game road trip is over, and the Cats will go through it unscathed, 6-0 and inside league play. Brian, much appreciated. We will uh, not take as much time between next talks. Thank you. Can't wait, Brady. Looking forward to talking again. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. There he goes, Brian McLaughlin, the voice of the UVM men's basketball team. Um, Danny, you watched every minute of the uh, Brian game on Saturday. What was your overall takeaway? Yeah, I think I was telling you before the show, it felt like it was like two completely different halves, wasn't it? Like really close before halftime, and then they kind of pulled away in the second half. They were up yeah, 10 most of the time. UVM was up three at the half, and then was like up like 17 at one point in the second half, right? They started hitting some shots and continued to play good defense, and they really did play well. And I, I was thinking about this earlier today, and I put this out on Twitter. I hope that we are appreciating the specialness of this group. And I don't want to sound preachy and I don't want to be on my soapbox because I do believe there's another level for this program to get to. But we spend so much time, and myself included, we spend so much time thinking about how UVM can hit that next level that sometimes I think we don't properly appreciate what we do have right now. Right? I want UVM to, some of you want UVM to, to, to leave conference, you know, to change conferences. We all want the new arena to come. I spend time talking about how can we get UVM to get better teams on the schedule and how can we get better budgets for the for the program and how can they get a better seed in the NCAA tournament? How can they win a tournament game? And we all want that stuff. But we spend so much time focusing on that that I do think it gets forgotten to appreciate just how good what we have is right now. This is a program that, look, you're talking about has won 20 games every year, pandemic year excluded, for more than a decade. Talk about a program that year in and year out is a threat for the for the NCAA tournament. That year in and year out is a popular upset pick in the NCAA tournament. Program that's had the player of the year in the conference for the last seven years, I believe. 
that might have it again this year, although I don't think so. I think we're going to get that stretch broken, but it still could happen. There's still, you know, 10 conference games left. And look, they're 16 and 5. They're going to win 20 games again this year. They're on track to be the number one seed in the conference tournament. And they're 6 and 0 in league play right now. And they do it year in and year out with different guys. With different guys. And the thing I love about this team, you know, look, I love it, I hate it. It's a different guy every night. I wish that UVM had a guy that you could count on and say, okay, this guy's getting 20, that guy's getting 15, and that guy's getting 12. I, I do wish UVM had that, right? Like the women's team, we know Emma Utterback's getting 15 every night. I wish UVM had a go-to star that we could count on that was predictable. They don't have that. But on the other side, it is pretty cool to see a group that, Anybody can be the hero on any given night. Shamir Bokes had 19 against UMass Lowell. I think he had six against Bryant. Deloney's in double figures four games in a row. He's had, you know, two and four in other games and barely has played. We see Rockamore, who goes from not playing at all to now getting eight points here and threw down that awesome dunk the other night. We get, you know, Hurley can be scoreless in the first half and get 12 in the second half. Long can go for 25 on any given night or can go for four. This team is imperfect, okay? This team is imperfect. They don't shoot it always great from three. They don't get to the line. As Brian said, they are a little undersized on the interior. They are imperfect. I do not think they will go unbeaten inside league play this year. But that doesn't mean they're not very good, and it doesn't mean what we're not watching is special. And I believe what we are watching is special just to see this team continue uh, year in and year out with different faces, with different guys, sometimes different coaches, figuring out a way to do it. And uh, I'm looking forward to that UAlbany game on Thursday. Women's game against UAlbany is going to be massive on Thursday, by the way. We're going to talk to Emma Utterback tomorrow. I'm excited to talk with her about this. Um, UAlbany and UVM is a conference title game rematch on the women's side. UVM obviously won it. UAlbany is unbeaten in the league right now. They've won at least, I think, like 15 games in a row. Um, Danny, check out the UAlbany women's basketball team, their record, and how many games they've won in a row. They are unbeaten in league play, and they've been rolling even prior to that. And that's going to be a game in Albany, and I'm excited to see it, right? I'm going to be watching both games simultaneously for sure on this one, and uh, we we will see. We'll talk to Emma Utterback about that tomorrow for sure, so. Um, I'm sure she's excited for that one also because even though UVM wears the crown right now, UAlbany is the number one team in the league, and they're going for home court advantage throughout the American East Tournament as well. Danny, any luck on that? 14 in a row. It's pretty good. Is, am I right on that? It was 14? Yeah. Okay. What's their overall record? They are 16-2. and two. Okay, and that's pretty good for, Excuse me, a, 18 and two. Right, for a low major team to have won 14 games in a row, right? That's all your conference games plus several non-conference games leading up to that. And considering how low the totem pole the America East is overall, you would think that they played and beaten some bigger conference teams in there. That's a, you know, when I, I was around UAlbany women's basketball for like three or four years. They won the conference tournament every single year. They went to the, they went to the NCAA tournament every year that I was there. And uh, it's been a good program for a long time, and they continue to be good now under, uh, oh, man, Coach Mullen, I 
think, Colleen Mullen, I believe is her name. But uh, see that game on Thursday. We'll talk to him about it tomorrow. That's going to do it for us here on the Brady Farkas Show. A reminder, the Jazz with George Thomas is coming up next. That's on from 7 o'clock until 9, and then it's Eye on the World with John Batchelor. Danny, we got high school hoops tomorrow, right? Knocks us off a few minutes early. We do. Okay, high school hoops tomorrow, Norwich hockey coming up on Wednesday. So uh, a couple of almost full shows over the next couple of days, but uh, we'll just roll with the punches. Again, Emma Otter back tomorrow. About 6, probably 6.20 or so, we'll bring her on a little bit early before high school basketball tomorrow. Jazz with George Thomas is next. Go download the podcast here on WDEV AM and